Hey there, it's Laura Flynn from Making Contact. Did you know our listeners are the ones responsible for making this show happen every week? We provide the show for free to radio stations because we think it's important to creating dialogue and impacting public discussions and policies. Right now, more than 100 stations in the U.S. carry us. If you like what you hear, go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a tax-deductible donation to support our work. That's radioproject.org. Now for this week's show. You're listening to Making Contact. I'm Salima Hamarani, and this is Making Contact. Prison abolition had been a widely discussed idea for centuries and was adopted even by the centrists in the 1970s. But during the last 40 years and a staggering boom in imprisonment, prison abolition seemed like a fringe idea. Get rid of prisons? Only radical activists thought that was possible. But in the last decade, the tide has been turning. We've had the work of Michelle Alexander and her book, The New Jim Crow. We've seen people released from prison who become advocates and lawyers and then change the way we talk about prison. People like Vanya Quarles. Even news anchors like Mark Lamont Hill now argue that abolition is a real and tangible goal. Today, we hear from all three of these thinkers about the state of the prison movement and the growing reality of abolition. The three speakers came together on a panel to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the organization Legal Services for Prisoners with Children in October 2018. Mark Lamont Hill, a Temple University professor and former CNN commentator, was wearing a free Mumia shirt. And Davey D., the host of the discussion, asked him why he decided to wear it. Yes, um, Mumia. Um, today actually was the seventh anniversary of our book, which is why I had the hoodie on. And we can never forget Mumia. We must never forget Mumia. But we must never forget any of the political prisoners. All of our PPs must be remembered and protected. But we must also remember that the structures that produce inequality, that criminalize our behaviors, that direct us toward prisons, make everybody sitting in these cages political prisoners. Every single one of these people is a political prisoner, and we can't forget any of them. But I think there's a bigger issue around disposability that we have to consider whenever we talk about those who are locked in these cages around the country. We live in a nation that renders the vulnerable disposable. If you are mentally ill, you are disposable. If you are homeless, you are disposable. If you are drug addicted, you are disposable. And our ways of disposing of people is to erase them from the public view. One of the main places to do that is the prison. And so the prison becomes a way to hide our own social contradictions, our failure to invest in the poor, our failure to do drug treatment, our failure to create structures where people can be properly housed. Our failure to create institutions of learning where people can actually learn and have social mobility. All of those contradictions are erased by the prison. And so to a large extent, it's convenient to have these folk locked in these cages and for us to forget them. We have to hold on to this idea that abolition is possible. We can't yield that point. If you were to ask someone 
50 years before the Emancipation Proclamation, if abolishing the slave economy was possible, say, no, how can we get rid of slavery? Our economy is tied up in it. Our culture is tied up in it. Some folk need to be slaves. It's not just a political crisis and an ideological crisis. It's a crisis of imagination. We have to reimagine what's possible. Robin Kelly talks about the freedom dream. What is our freedom dream? Our freedom dream can't be warmer and fuzzier prisons. It, it can't be, right? We're not reformers. Our freedom dream can't be cops that dance with us on YouTube. That, that can't be the idea. We have to get rid of the occupation. But we have to begin with a different understanding. We have to begin with a new, we have to decriminalize our imagination. We have literally scaled down our sense of what's possible, right? Howard Thurman talked about thinking beyond the moment, not being prisoner of the event. So I'm saying, let, let's imagine something bigger. What does that mean in a practical level? It means that first we have to get rid of this idea that justice means punishment. For, for a lot of us, even those of us in the movement, that is an ideological position that we can take in theory. But in practice, our idea is that, ju that justice means punishment, and for too many of us, punishment means confinement. And so what happens is, when someone steals our TV, when someone does harm to us, or even when these cops kill us, our first thing is lock them up. Now, I understand that's our only recourse in the context of this moment, and because they're locking us up, we have to have some kind of response. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not minimizing that, but our ultimate goal can't be a world where cops get locked up for killing us. It has to be a world where cops are demilitarized and disarmed so that they can't kill us, so that prison doesn't become somehow our end goal. We have to reimagine this thing. So as, so as we move away, and I'm going to pass this thing, as we move away from this idea of who did it and how do we punish them to a question of who was harmed and how do we make them whole again, right? As we move to that, that position, we're now in a better position to raise different questions because we have different possibilities in front of us. So when people ask me, is abolition possible? I, yes, it's inevitable. It has to be. That has to be our freedom dream because there's people in the room who are not abolitionists. It's like, that all sounds good, but I got this cousin. And if you knew my cousin, or this dude on my block, if you knew him, you would want prison too, right? Like the old Richard Pryor joke. There are people who do harm, who may not be ready to be in community right at this moment. And we have to find ways to fix the issue, to heal them, to make those who are harmed whole again. But there are ways to do all of those things without using the prison as the template for how to deal with it. So there might be somebody who has a mental health issue, and I would agree, if you shoot up a school, you have a mental health issue. If you're a child molester, you have a mental health issue. There's a way to get secure confinement, there's a way to do treatment without putting someone in this thing that we call the prison. We can, we have, we can have a more robust imagination than that, I think. That was Mark Lamont Hill. Now, you might have heard of Michelle Alexander or read her seminal work, The New Jim Crow. The book was a sensation when it was published in 2010 and it influenced an entire generation of prison abolitionists. But a lot has changed since the publication of The New Jim Crow. So how would Alexander change the content of the book now to fit the new environment we're currently in? 
But I, I also, I also want to say, you know, in looking back in terms of what has changed and what hasn't, certainly 10 years ago when I was doing the research for writing the book, we were at a moment in our nation's history where we were still very much captured by this race to incarcerate. And there were relatively few people who were serious about challenging the drug war, challenging the Get Tough movement, who were viewing the system of mass incarceration, the prison industrial complex, as a civil rights issue or even you know, as a racial justice issue at that time. But legal services for prisoners with children, all of us are none, Black Lives Matter, the extraordinary amount of organizing and movement building that has happened over the last 10 years has created a radically different landscape today. I remember 20 years ago when we were dealing with a wave of legislation in California and beyond. There was Prop 21, there were the three strikes initiatives. It was just an onslaught of initiatives and legislations designed to lock people up for longer and longer periods of time. And civil rights organizations for the most part were quiet, were mum. Um, well today we're in a different place and we have a wave of legislation across the United States that is scaling back much of you know, what had been done during those years. But I, I am concerned um, that even in this moment, with all of the victories, uh, with ban the box, with drug policy reform, um, with all of these victories, that we are at a moment where we can see right before our eyes how the systems are adapting and morphing and attempting to devise new forms of racial and social control um, that we can see we will be dealing with you know, for decades to come. I remember when the book first came out, people would ask me, uh, well, what do you think the next system of racial and social control would be? And I said, well, we know there's gonna be mass deportation. Mass deportation had already begun by that time. But I struggled and kind of wondered, well, what, what would it be? You know, 40 years ago, nobody dreamed of the system of mass incarceration. Is it possible to predict what the next system of racial or social control is? But I think we can predict today because already we see digital prisons being born all over this country. We have electronic monitors, we have surveillance systems, we have a new system of control that we are seeing in our communities that are being kind of sold as an alternative to prisons, but are functioning as new high-tech means of keeping our communities and our families under perpetual surveillance, even if it's open-air prisons. And decisions are being made about who is going to be locked up and who is going to be you know, slapped with a monitor based on algorithms and based on computer-generated predictions. And we're entering a world, I think, where the brick-and-mortar prisons may be scaled back. But we will have open-air prisons, to borrow the language of Jazz Hayden, that will control entire communities. So rather than being locked up for 10 years, you might have an electronic monitor you know, for 25. 
So I think it's critically important for us to be aware not only of what we have accomplished, but the challenges that you know we can see on the horizon for um, decades to come. Davey D reminded the audience that the media strongly influences the way that we think about prison and punishment. Mark Lamont Hill, who works for BET News, understands the influence of the media particularly well. There's already an agenda at play with, with big money, big business, that then get, come, makes it to the media that then allows the public consciousness to be shifted in such a way that will then endorse policies that operate against our own interests. I mean, think about welfare reform in the 80s, right, or and again in the 90s. Uh, but when you saw how, how the state began to shrink in the 80s, I mean, it wasn't a coincidence that you'd watch, you'd see television shows about this woman in Compton or this woman in Chicago that had all these kids and was stealing welfare, et cetera, et cetera. Because those type of stories that they'd run on Donahue or Sally Jesse Raphael or the old Oprah, those kind of things would then set our mind to have a particular disposition against those people. And those people became the face of the social safety net, which we demonized. So suddenly you wanted to vote against that woman in Compton with all them kids on drugs, stealing welfare, even though that wasn't representative of what was actually happening. So then we started voting against her too. And white people who were the biggest recipients of the social safety net were voting against her too. So you saw that in the 80s, you see it in the 90s, we could go on and on and on. In 1994, I'm just gonna give one more quick example. You think about the Prison Litigation Reform Act. Um, the Prison Litigation Reform Act was huge in closing the doors of the courts to prisoners. So prisoners who were trying to fight their own cases, it became harder. Being able to file appeals, pro se appeals, it became more difficult. But how did it happen? You started seeing the news articles. This person's suing because they want a salad bar. We started to say, well, that's crazy. These frivolous appeals, these frivolous lawsuits that need to be stopped so the real stuff can get through. And in doing so, they shut the doors to everybody. And the, the person wasn't suing for a salad bar. They were suing because there were rat droppings in the food. People were dying from the food. And they said, well, if you can't give us healthy food, at least give us a healthy food option. One example is a salad bar. But by twisting the narrative, it made them disposable again. All that said, those came from media stories that were driving it. Similarly, now at this moment, we're seeing something different. The pendulum has shifted a bit. I think there is conversation because white people are struggling. That opioid addiction is a thing. When these white people, oh, they need treatment and care, Jim. I saw yesterday with the Kavanaugh hearing, I swear to God, it's on Slate.com. They said the Kavanaugh hearings are a stirring reminder that America needs to move toward restorative justice. <laughs> right, because <laughs> this federal judge from Yale desperately needs justice, right? And the only way he can get justice is to be on the Supreme Court, because he really, really wants it. Not the 2.3 million people locked up right now. You see what I mean? That's the conversation. Donald Trump last night said, we're, we're entering a dangerous moment where men can get locked up for things they didn't do. <laughs> but I think the bigger point, um, real quick, is when I worked at Fox News, they also had meetings on Monday. But what was interesting about the meeting to me was you have Second Amendment advocates you know, people who think the right to have, wear arms means to have any gun of any size of any sort <laughs> without any restriction, right? And you have pro-lifers, and you have homeschoolers, and you have war hawks, and you have these free market fundamentalists. And they didn't necessarily agree with each other, but they were all in the same space, in the same room, coming up with a common strategy to move forward their bigger platform. 
And I think part of what we have to do, if there's a lesson in that for me in terms of the media, but also the bigger movement is for us, if they're that cynical to, to hang together, we can do the same thing, yeah. right? And so if they rock like that, what can we do? How can we, who are doing school reform and prison reform and healthcare reform, mental health you know, reform or justice, environmental justice, how can we understand the connectedness of that stuff and move together as a stronger, more unified unit? That means we gotta all agree, I'm not trying to romanticize this thing, but I think that our resistance has to be just as unified and organized. We need talking points, we need things to say. We should all be saying Central Park Five every time Trump opens his mouth. We should all have a narrative. I think that can help. I hope that by now we can connect those dots and that we can see that the movements to end mass incarceration and the movements to end mass deportation really are two streams feeding the same river. That's all part of the same movement um, you know, to honor the dignity and humanity of each and every one of us, no matter who we are, where we came from, or what we may have done. And that the same forces that are profiting from mass incarceration are now profiting from mass deportation. And in fact, the private detention centers that are locking people up by the scores wouldn't even exist today if it hadn't been for the war on drugs and the Get Tough movement and the private prisons that were born a few decades ago. And so I hope that we can now see more clearly who stands to benefit and who stands to lose from not only the birth of the private prison industry, but all of the private prison profiteers, as well as how these political forces that seek to perpetually divide us and make us imagine that we have more to lose by uniting than to gain across lines of race, class, genders, sexual orientations, and all the rest. You're listening to Michelle Alexander, Vanya Quarles, and Mark Lamont Hill on a panel recorded in October 2018 by Davy D. in Oakland, California. Thank you to Davy and Hard Knock Radio for the recording, and this is Making Contact. For any past shows, visit www.radioproject.org, subscribe to our podcast, or get our updates at www.radioproject.org. And now... Let's rejoin the discussion of the prison system in the U.S. and how it's evolving. Not every writer and academic believes that abolition is possible. In fact, many are on the forefront of helping to create a new kind of prison. Not brick and mortar prisons that you can physically see, but digital ones, like Michelle Alexander has been talking about, ones that track us at all times. So what's the role of the university in the prison abolition movement, or even in a panel discussion such as this? Here's Michelle Alexander. Well, I mean, in terms of academia, part of the reason why I was bringing up digital prisons and the rise of the use of algorithms to predict future dangerousness and this move towards rationalizing and justifying the use of pervasive surveillance and electronic monitoring. It's not just all of these prison profiteers and private companies that stand to benefit. There's also a lot of people in academia who are very much invested in this idea that there's a kind of technical, technocratic solution to this problem of mass incarceration that can be solved if only we come up with the right formula, the right algorithm, or the right amount of 
surveillance so that instead of a giant electronic monitor on your ankle, maybe it can get smaller, maybe it can be implanted. Maybe there's ways in which people can be perpetually monitored for the rest of their lives in communities that are labeled as high risk or high crime neighborhoods. In fact, there was just a book that just came out that was supposedly by a liberal academic who was arguing that we should use algorithms, you know, predicting future dangerousness, future harm, in order to remove children from homes in poor communities where algorithms uh, gathering data from those neighborhoods and those communities and those families will predict that that child will likely be exposed to violence or to high levels of poverty or that their parents are likely, based on an algorithm, likely to be neglectful parents and that those children should be removed before they're harmed. What's absolutely critical for us today is not simply to organize for the abolition of the brick and mortar prison, but to understand that abolition is about ending this carceral state, um, ending this you know, addiction to punishment. It's ending the spirit of punishment that has infected our nation in large part because of our capitalist mindset that requires some of us to be disposable. And so I think that if we're serious about ending not just the prisons that have walls, but ending this perpetual birth and rebirth of these systems of racial and social control, we're going to have to talk about capitalism. We're going to have to talk about you know, how to reimagine not just our legal systems or our political systems, but our economic systems so that none of us are disposable and can't easily be erased. Um, And that, I think, means that these silos that we've been talking about here, where we imagine that education reform is a separate issue from immigration reform, from criminal justice reform. No, these, all of these conversations about, are all about fundamentally the same thing, which is, do we all matter? Are we willing to honor the dignity and humanity of each and every one of us? And will our education systems, our political systems, and our economic systems actually treat all of our lives as though they matter or not? Pookie should be on this panel. Pookie should get a party. Pookie should be able to get a marijuana selling license and make money. He was doing it before it became legal. That's Vonya Quarles. She was in prison as a youth and as an adult, and now she's an advocate on the outside. She is the co-founder and executive director of Starting Over, a group providing transitional housing and re-entry services, and she's a member of All of Us or None, a grassroots organization fighting for the rights of formerly and currently incarcerated people and their families. Here's what Quarles has to say about academics and the issue of prison abolition. And so oftentimes when we talk and we have these discussions about this criminal injustice system or the people that are involved in the work to put an end to it, we often relegate those people most impacted, those people who are more than their stories, to a box. But we banned the box. So that means not only did we ban the box on employment applications, but we no longer fit into the boxes 
that are created by people who don't know, but who care. We know you care. And so I think that I'm sitting here to share with you that we can strategize. We can start foundations. Kim Carter, can we start foundations? We can start organizations. We can come in and lead organizations. We can count money. 40 years ago, I was a third generation convicted felon going in and out of the system as a teenager because that's what my world was like. And so I entered this built environment that was here long before I was born, but it's our job to make sure that it's not here for the next generation of our babies. And so that's, that's the work that's in front of us and that's the work that we have to do. Um, so I look at reentry now and I get calls from GEO. How many of you know or have heard of GEO? So now GEO is the reentry giant. GEO is asking people, community-based organizations like ours, to partner with them to continue to confine, convict, and house people and enslave people. And they want to partner with communities. So the conversation has become amorphous. The problem has shifted like it's been predicted that it would. So now the conversation is about how are we going to keep them in the system? We're gonna call it re-entry, but it's really not re-entry. It's an extension of a chain. It's, a, it's an extension of the chain that we've been shackled to since we got here. And it has changed. So now we're talking re-entry, but is it re-entry? Just let me go. Just let me go. So millions and billions of dollars have been poured into to this conservative definition of reentry and a change to what we've seen. So we're no longer building prisons, we're just making the reentry process profitable for people like the Koch brothers and the GEOs and the other organizations of the world who can never ever get over an addiction to free labor, cheap labor. That's not coming from someone who has studied at fine institution or is an academia. That's from someone who dropped out of the ninth grade and became a mom because a boy kissed her on her elbow and she thought she was in love. Um, that's somebody who uh, had a crack pipe in her mouth and wore a size one for a decade and smoked up her babies. And today I'm an attorney. Yes, today I'm an attorney. So the success is ours. The success is what we do with today in recognizing that yes, we have made progress, but there's a lot that we still have to do. We should be talking more about prevention, more about restorative justice than we're talking about reentry. We need to be talking about making communities whole. We, we need to be talking about harm-free zones where we know who to call when we think about calling 911. What, what do we do? And, and we need to take the narrative of what public safety is because we already know what it isn't. 
We already know what it is. So now let's, let's tell them what it is. So I, I don't think that we should wait on someone to come and save us because they probably would have been here already if they were coming. And, and, and it's not what you can do or I can do, it's what we can do. And so the reason that things are changing in Sacramento is because you have changed and you're putting the pressure on Sacramento. But we can never expect the government that has done to us what this government has done to us to come and save us. We have to do that. So yes, we have to push for change and fight for change, but the real change takes place here. Every case I've ever read in law school and since then came about because public opinion made it change. It's not gonna happen other than that. That was Vanya Quarles speaking on a panel together with Mark Lamont Hill and Michelle Alexander. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact, the future of abolition. Special thanks to the Omnia Foundation, Legal Services for Prisoners with Children, Davey D and Hard Knock Radio, and Teresa Thomas. And we want to hear from you. What are your reflections on the prison abolition movement? Join the conversation on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is making underscore contact. On an Instagram, we're making contact radio project. The Making Contact team includes Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, Dylan Hoyer, Lisa Rudman, and I am Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.